It's actually quite hard to recognise some of you this morning. Because many of you looked very different last night. And for those who aren't uh, sure what I'm talking about, we had a big Victorian Christmas last evening. And a lot of these people here were dressed very differently. I was rather hoping some of those ornate dresses might have been out this morning. And some of those suits. We had a great time. Words are important. You probably don't need me to tell you that. They help with communication. And meaning comes when words are used in a context and we understand that context. So if I said to you, I saw a film last night and it was wicked, would you avoid it or would you go and see it? Because quite interestingly, words also change over time and with usage. Some time ago on a trip in the Cotswolds, we were driving through a very beautiful Cotswold village and there was a pub right in the middle. It was called the Crown and Trumpet, except that Angela, my wife, referred to it as the Crown and Crumpet. She was close, but the word wasn't quite right and it kind of gives a different meaning actually. I remember too a really good friend of ours in Cornwall. He made a mistake when giving the announcements in church one Sunday morning. He often got his words confused which was hilarious anyway. And he was referring to an event the following week where we were watching, and for some of you, you will realize how long ago I'm referring here to. Um, it was a fact and faith film. Does anyone remember the old fact and faith films? Yes, well, I won't mention names. Um, Christian films uh, bringing science and faith together. It's just that our friends mentioned this event coming up and referred to it as a, the fact and filth film in complete error. However, the evening was packed out, so it was actually okay. But words are important. And the reason I'm mentioning that this morning is because of our talk. And I've been given a title of the church in Antioch. Now, if you know the verses that we're going to be reading, and some of you will, not all of you will, some of you will already be ahead of me on this one, because people had found a new word, a new name, a new term to use when describing those who followed Jesus. And Acts chapter 11 verse 26 reads very simply this statement of fact. The disciples, that is the followers of Jesus, were called Christians first at Antioch. 
So we're going to read the story around that statement of fact to give us an understanding. And I want to talk a little bit around the significance of the church at Antioch and what we can learn from them for ourselves. So I'm reading from Acts chapter 11 and starting at verse 19. So this is, and keep this in mind, the church that is at Antioch. Acts chapter 11 verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, what a great name, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. And this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So you can see from the story, the, the text that I've just read, that in Antioch, huge numbers of people were coming to a personal faith for themselves in Jesus Christ. They were choosing to become followers of Jesus. And if they had Facebook, then they would have liked Jesus. And they were a, a huge number. And so much so, this large number of people were becoming recognizable as a sizable and significant group of people within the population of the city. So what are you going to call this people? They're different. They, they stand out. And what do you call them? What name do you give them? What terminology shall we use? I mean, surely we could just keep to 
the language of disciple or follower or apprentice or learner. All of that is captured within the, the name of disciple. But the reality is, a disciple and that language was very generic. It was common. It was usual. There were many disciples who followed many rabbis or Jewish leaders, Jewish teachers. A rabbi would have a, a group of people who would be faithful and loyal to them, would follow them, listen to them, learn from them. And whilst we might use the word disciple today to refer to disciples of Jesus, well, in the Jewish culture and in this place and at this time, this was common language. There were lots and lots of disciples, lots and lots of teachers or rabbis. But there was something very different about this one rabbi, this teacher, this leader called Jesus. And there was something very different about his disciples, those who had chosen to follow him. And it just seems that this created the breeding ground for a new name to be found, a new term to be used to describe these disciples. What shall we call them? And so it was in Antioch that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. And there's a simplicity with that language. Because a Christian in the original language that we have in our Bible is one who follows Jesus, one who belongs to the household of Christ. But it would seem that this term, this new name, was actually one given in derision. It actually wasn't a complimentary name. We get this from the sense and from what was happening around at the time. I mean, quite independently of the Bible. Now, as Christians, of course, we get a lot from the Bible. But there is other evidence outside of the Bible which corroborates the story of Jesus, that corroborates the history that we have within the Bible. And there was a first centurion Roman historian named Tacitus. And in his record of first century Middle East, he wrote this. The vulgar call them Christians. He's a polite man, isn't he? You know, it's, uh, this was the sense that, that he gathered. It was, oh, you know, it's the vulgar, common people. They're, they're referring to Jesus' followers as, as Christians. So it wasn't particularly a compliment to be called a Christian. It was, it was a title used 
in derision. But nevertheless, isn't it interesting that a name had to be found for a group of people that was growing and growing fast, that was different to any other community, any other disciple group that were around at the time. And in Antioch, this, I think, is significant. I think that's why we've got to, as we interpret the Bible, you take a statement of fact, think, look, something happened here. And wouldn't it be good to understand what was it about the church at Antioch that made this happen? They were first called Christians at Antioch. It's quite interesting though, isn't it, that a name that was given in derision might now be worn with honour. I wonder, for those of us who are Christians, do we wear that term with honour, with pride? Or is it with a little bit of embarrassment, I wonder? You know, I'm not going to say too loudly I'm a Christian at work. Because what would that mean? And sometimes we're afraid, we're, we're shy. Maybe ashamed isn't the right language, but... I just wonder, can we wear that kind of title with, with pride? I, I'm not ashamed to be called a follower of Jesus. I'm proud to be called a Christian. I, I'm willing to tell people that that is who I am. But what was happening at Antioch, and this is what I want to get under, what was the commonality amongst these Jesus followers what were their customs? What were their behaviours? What were their beliefs and their attitudes that made them a grouping of people that stood out? And we're going to call them something. We're going to call them Christians. And of course, if you actually take a group of people and you talk about their characteristics, you talk about their shared habits, their shared customs, you talk about the practices that they engage with together, you talk about the ideas that they agree with, the, the norms and the characteristics of a group of people, you know what we're really talking about? We're talking about their culture. Because in a sense, that is what we mean. We often use this word a lot. You know, what is the culture of our world today? And what's the culture of society? And, and what's the culture within the church? And what's the culture within Ebby? And it includes all of those things. It's, it's, it's the things we do together. It's, it's the habits that we all get into together. And, and it's what we agree with. And it's what we fight for. And it's all of the characteristics that are common amongst us. It's the things that draw us together than those that divide us and separate us. Because we've also got diversity and different thoughts. But what is the commonality that makes us a group, a, a community, a church? And what is the culture that is under all of that? And I guess that's the real question, isn't it? What, is, what was the culture of these Jesus followers that they had adopted 
that made them recognisable as belonging to Jesus. And I wonder if as a church we together can learn from from Antioch. And I'm just going to mention a few things. I want to mention about the context of Judaism and uh, often we refer, we, we refer to Jews and Gentiles. I mean, very, very simplistically, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. <laughs> if you're not a Jew, you're a non-Jew. Uh, and a Gentile can be an all-encompassing word that refers to anyone who isn't a Jew. But Judaism was so strong in the hearts of the people at the time. Jesus' followers, well, even they were generally keeping the good news about Jesus to themselves, to their own people, to their own kind. Christian Jews were talking to other Jews about Jesus. Judaism was so strong within them. Except that in Antioch, some people braved it a little bit differently and thought, why don't we tell some people who are not Jews about Jesus? Let's, let's talk to the Greeks. Let's talk to the Gentiles. Let's talk to the non-Jews about Jesus. And that's what some did. And I think this is one of the things that marked the church at Antioch out. I know it was happening elsewhere as well, but significantly at Antioch. So some of them began to speak to Greeks also. This is verse 20, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So it seems to me that Jesus' followers in Antioch were actually embracing a much wider perspective to faith in Jesus. That this good news that they held could not be kept for the Jews alone. This is kind of so big, so important, so wonderful. Isn't this for everyone? Isn't this for those who are not Jews as well? And I want to use that as a significant point for the church at Antioch. And is that the mark of every church? Is that within our culture that as far as we're concerned, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. In other words, it's not just for people like me. There are people who are very different to me and they deserve the good news of Jesus just as much, maybe even more so, I don't know, but everyone deserves to hear (coughs) the story of Jesus. No discrimination, no bias, no favoritism, not just people that I get on with, not just people like me, but people unlike me. Now, is that in our culture? I'm asking the question. I've got to ask that of myself. I'm asking it of you. Is this it? We're prepared to take the story of Jesus to anyone and everyone, not just people like us. So Jew and Gentile, this was happening in Antioch. Everyone was getting to hear the story of Jesus. I love that. And that needs to be, I think, in our culture. Secondly, let's think about Barnabas because Barnabas was sent 
to Antioch, really. What's going on at Antioch? We're hearing news, and this is quite incredible. Barnabas, would you go and check it out for us? So Barnabas goes to Antioch, and uh, even Barnabas himself ends up instrumental in drawing people to Jesus when he's at Antioch. Isn't that interesting? But there was a curiosity And Barnabas, we are told, was a good man and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And and I think that's interesting about Barnabas. I wonder what, what characteristics did Barnabas have that I can learn from? What characteristics did he exhibit? I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. Well, Barnabas, we are told, was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Spirit-filled and faith-filled. And I'm thinking to myself now, if that's Barnabas, I'd like to be a little bit like that myself. Are these characteristics that we're prepared to take on for ourselves? Is this the culture we're going to buy into? That actually being both spirit-filled and faith-filled like Barnabas. You know, this is all happening at Antioch. And we're now working not out of our own strength, but out of the strength of the Holy Spirit himself. You know, not far from us. We may have referenced this many times. We can't help it. It's part of our local history, to be honest. Not far from us stand five huge stone buildings. They were George Muller's orphan homes up at Ashley Down. Lots of places in Bristol, you can see them. They kind of stand on top of a hill. And I wanted to just refer to the moment when George Muller made a decision to build his second orphan home. He'd already built one. And he was catering for hundreds of orphan children in this one home. But sad to say, the need outgrew the provision. And Muller felt led by God to build a second home. In May 1851, George Muller finally decided to go ahead with his plans for expansion and began to pray that God would provide him with the necessary means. About £35,000, he estimated. Now, I put £35,000 in an inflation converter, because £35,000 in 1851 was worth a lot more than £35,000 is worth today. We know that, don't we? In fact... I put it in a converter and it suggested this was more like four and a half million pound today's money. So if that's accurate, then that's really was what his estimate was. I need four and a half million pounds to build a second home. And this is how his journal reads. So this is fact. This is George Muller's journal. This is the decision he made when he built the second home. The greatness of the sum required affords me a kind of secret joy. Okay. For the greater the difficulty to be overcome, the more will it be seen to the glory of God. 
how much can be done by prayer and faith. Now this is when I'm thinking, I'm not very much like George Muller. Because to be honest, I don't welcome the huge challenge and think, wow, what an opportunity for God's glory to be seen. I don't look at the huge challenge and think, wow, let's see what prayer and faith does with this. I mean, we all shrink back a little bit from those big things that seem like mountains Except that George Muller kind of inwardly smiled at it and thought, this does seem big, doesn't it? But to God, it really isn't. And let's just see what faith and prayer can achieve. And it makes me smile because I'm thinking, now that's what I want to be like. Now, wouldn't that be great if this was within the culture of Ebby, that we were both spirit-filled and faith-filled in our whole community, in our whole living. Moving on, I want to say something about teaching and learning, because for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. So there is no doubt that it was the practice of these Christians to gather together as a community and to learn together. And they've got Barnabas and Saul teaching them, leading them, guiding them. And again, I think this is part of their practice. This was the norm. This was their culture. And it's an attitude that makes me want to meet with you who are... My, my, my community, my family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we might learn together. This is part of the purpose of our Sunday morning together. This is the part of the purpose we're here together on a Sunday. We worship, yes. We're looking after our children, yes. And our youth group, yes. But we're here to learn together. And I think that's a good thing. And there's lots of different ways we can learn. This is just one model of teaching and learning. And it is. And sometimes we break this open a little bit. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but sometimes we don't have a preach. And we'll have a, a very more informal kind of cafe-style church on a Sunday morning. And you think, well, where's the message gone? Where's the preach? And it's because we learn in many, many different ways. This is one model of teaching and learning. And it's something we need to do, we want to do, and we buy into that we're going to learn together. And I think that's in their culture at Antioch. They were prepared to learn together. That's what our midweek groups are about as well. I love it that in smaller settings, our, our, our groups are getting together to pray together and to, to look at the Bible together and to share of life's experiences, to support one another. What are we doing? We're learning together, but we're encouraging one another. And this is the culture. This is how we do community. And it's about teaching and learning. And every single one of us, the teacher included, is learning all the time. A couple of other things to finish with. 
I want to mention prophecy and fulfillment. How can you not refer to Agabus? During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, you might not be impressed with the prophecy that Agabus gave. There's going to be a famine, everyone. Hurrah. But I am impressed with the the accuracy of uh, that prophetic word. And yes, it was fulfilled. And there was a famine around. And I kind of think this is part of the culture we should be having, that there needs to be a prophetic edge to it. This isn't just us working things out on our own, but we're going to listen to the voice of God. We're going to allow his Holy Spirit to speak. And yes, we have the word of God in our hands, the written Bible that we can read. But then we have got hearts and ears that are open to the voice of God. What is the spirit saying to the church today? And we need to be open to that. You know, I love this when it happens. There's someone sometimes on a Sunday morning, it might happen in your small group, it might happen in other ways. Someone will come to the front and say, look, I don't know if this is from God or not, but I've just, I've got this picture, I've got this word, can I read this verse from the Bible? And, and a lot of latitude is given for that to be shared and, and yeah, we don't know at that time, was that just my mind or was that from God? We don't really know, except that that one picture lands with someone in the in the crowd who says afterwards you know you mentioned this picture and my heart came alive when you said that because it was so pertinent to me right now and I think that is the prophetic edge that is being practiced because it's in our culture to do that and I love it when that happens And isn't that what you want? Isn't that what we want? I want the Spirit of God to have free reign to talk, to guide, to lead, to reveal more of Jesus to us. And I think as these things become habit-forming in us, they become part of our culture. One last thing. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. Yes, the famine struck and there was great need. So what did the Christians, that they're now called, in Antioch do about it? They decided they were going to provide for those in need. And it seems that they, with generosity and compassion and that's it this is the culture generosity and compassion they gave from what they had to meet the needs of those who are struggling a need arises and we respond with kindness people are suffering so we we reply with comfort poverty is present so we give to the hungry we offer food to the thirsty we give a drink to the prisoner will visit them. And so it goes on. And I think this is the culture of the church at Antioch that we should be a part of. Oh, I hope people would say that of Ebby. 
that we're a generous crowd here. We're compassionate to the poor, to the vulnerable, that we give out of what we have and we give generously. You see, these are habits that form within us a culture. It's not just good works. It's who we are. It's how we respond every time. Esther mentioned we're offering cakes to the local schools. Believe me, we are under no duty to do so. There is no request from the school to do this. It's just a thought, an idea. We've done it before. We know how appreciative staff at these schools, including this one where we're meeting right now, they come back with words of thanks that said, you know, you've, you've just brought in cakes and it's just lifted our spirits and they, they express gratitude. This is what we mean. It's just a mark of generosity. And it's... It's, I want to say it's our culture. It's what we do because of who we are. And who are we? We are Christians. We're followers of Jesus. And that is what makes us adopt all of these characteristics and behaviors and attitudes. It becomes the culture of the community that we are as church. I broke off because the text in Acts moves us on from Antioch and there's a, a description of um, Peter in prison. Well, we had that last week and Sarah brought us some lovely thoughts about prayer. Um, but, but that happened. Peter was in prison and the church felt the persecution again. Uh, but also Herod... He died, and uh, there was everything around the death of uh, the ruler at the time. Uh, and then we come back to Antioch, and I'm kind of wondering, okay, we've, we've left Antioch for a bit, and other things have happened. We've come back to Antioch. Now, what we saw at Antioch at the first, is it still there? This is Acts 13, verse 1, so it's jumping over. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Oh, wow. Barnabas, Simeon named Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had brought up with Herod, who was brought up uh, with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord, love that, and fasting, the Holy, oh, the Holy Spirit's still there then. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So we've left Antioch and we've come back. And my question is, those things I mentioned, were they just one-offs? Or were they really embedded, 
characteristics that became the culture of the church at Antioch. And what am I seeing here? A people that are still spirit-filled and faith-filled. So much so they're going to respond to the spirit directing them to set apart Barnabas and Saul. Not only that, but prophecy was still very much in operation. As people were there being recognized as prophets, but others were being recognized as teachers. So they were still teaching. They were still learning. So that's still going on at Antioch. And there's generosity in all honesty. Barnabas and Saul were significant people in the church now at Antioch. And now the spirit is saying, let them go, send them off, give them away. What generosity that must have called for. So those characteristics are still there. And it wasn't a one-off. It was their culture. And the reason I wanted to talk like this from this text for this morning was to challenge all of us. Is this the culture that is within us as Ebby? Well, that's something to think about, isn't it? To be challenged about.